All right, this is episode 14 of the Progression Health podcast. I'm here with Brian O'Hengisa, and he is going to introduce himself now. Thank you, Ross. Uh, it's nice to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, so my name is Brian O'Hengisa. I am university qualified nutritionist. So I have a bachelor's um, of, of human nutrition. And after I did my undergrad degree, I went and did a couple of nutrition coaching courses right which um led me into that field which is what i wanted to do um basically from the from the start of going down the nutrition route uh, from a career perspective i knew that's essentially where i wanted to end up um you know working to people working with people one-to-one uh but not in like a dietetics capacity where they were already maybe quite sick or there's a lot of um clinical aspects to it um so you know, right now I am the, the head of nutrition and triage method. So if anyone doesn't know what triage method is, the online uh, coaching company. So we do online personal training and we also do online nutrition coaching, uh, which is what I'm looking after. Uh, I got a team of, you know, well, one, one other fellow working with me, um, Dean on the nutrition team. Um, but we'll see, expand that as time goes on. Um, so yeah, they're, most of what we do is coaching and education. So there's, there's the coach's corner, which is our education platform for professionals. You know, if you're a personal trainer or want to upskill and training side of things and nutrition or whatever else, uh, we have that. So put out a lot of educational content. Um, as I'm, I'm hope, I hope you can attest to Ross, um, okay. you know, on social media, everything else. So yeah, triage method, um, head of nutrition there and I, I do coach a lot i spend most of my time coaching people like um in, in all different capacities like quite a quite a wide range of clients you know so between you know body composition improvement clients you know fat loss or you know improving healthy eating you know if they if they need to manage a certain health condition like type 2 diabetes or uh pcos or ibs um all that sort of stuff. You have athletes uh, and people who just want to maximize their training performance. Um, and then in, in kind of recent years, I've, I've found myself working with a lot of people with uh, disordered eating habits and behaviors and you know things like binge eating or anxieties and being overly rigid and restrictive when it comes to their food and having fears of certain foods and stuff like that. So that overlap of um, uh, the nutrition science and psychology is is where i've been doing a lot of work in the last say, two years three years maybe um, and i really really enjoy that stuff but i also enjoy having like a wide range of things like you know it keeps things interesting rather than just sticking to the one client you know brilliant yeah we'll, we'll touch on um what you've learned on recently later in the podcast um it's funny how i was thinking uh nutrition you're kind of like pigeonholed into one area but as you've just alluded to, there's so many different parts of nutrition. Um, so let's say you got a hundred clients coming to you. What are kind of some of the typical, we'll say challenges that these clients have or typical things you work on with these clients? Yeah, I think a lot of the biggest challenges they have is, is their experience with, I suppose, the dieting industry, the fitness industry, let's call it. And their, their previous experience with dieting and trying to manage their nutrition because they're often exposed to like nonsense information which which leads to them 
having these erroneous beliefs about what they actually need to do to get results with their nutrition. So, you know, it's obviously, it often is less extreme than what they think it needs to be. Um, but then it also often takes longer than they might initially think because, you know, we don't, we don't do quick fixes. You know, we basically want to, uh, transform someone's ability to look after their nutrition long-term, you know, that's, that's always the goal. Uh, when anybody signs up, it's like, okay, I want to get you to the point where I'm the last nutritionist you'll ever need. Right. If you, if you choose not to, you know, you could obviously just, you, people like the accountability, people like to see how other coaches do things, et cetera, et cetera. But you will have the tools and the skills at least to manage this stuff on your own if you wanted to. Um, so th there's a huge educational component of getting people's understanding in order of like what the principles are that they, you know, the boxes they actually need to tick to, to achieve the goals that they have as it relates to their nutrition and be it body composition or performance or whatever else. Um, but people often come in with these, like I said, like beliefs that you can't eat certain foods, right? Because they're inherently fattening or even for, for my kind of disordered eating clients, like beliefs that they can't, they can't eat certain foods because they can't control how much they're going to eat of those foods. Um, but often the, the issue comes back to the actual restriction uh, in the first place. So you know, often like food is the solution to the problem and not the problem itself. Um, you know, in, in terms of like athletes, a lot of them, you know, aren't eating enough in, in some cases. Most people aren't eating enough protein. Like that's nearly, yeah, that's nearly all across the board. People aren't eating enough protein. People aren't eating, eating enough plant foods, you know, so vegetables, fruits, um, people generally aren't eating enough fiber. Uh, their omega-3 intake it, it can be kind of low because they're not eating oily fish. So if they're not eating oily fish and they're not using an omega-3 supplement and potentially they're not getting enough marine omega-3 fatty acids into their diet. Um, so those are kind of some like dietary lapses that, that I would see a lot of. Um, and then like some of, the, some of the things I described already from like the psychology around the process. Um, so people often have pretty wild expectations of, you know, basically, you know, how fast they're going to get results potentially. Uh, but also, like I said, what is actually required to get them. So, um, that would be, that would be a lot of it. And it's, yeah, a lot of it comes down to, yeah, just having, as yeah, it is, it is genuinely limiting beliefs. Like I know that, that phrase is thrown around a lot, but it's, it's beliefs that, you know, hold them back and, and like perfectionism standards, Jesus, that's a huge one. Um, and set, setting these standards for themselves that they can't reach. And then they feel shit about that. And then they give up because, by their own standards, they're just failing all the time, even though they might be doing more than enough to get the results. You know, it's like if they've set their target at like 100% and they're only doing 90%, they're still falling short, even though they're 90% of the way. So that's a massive one, man. Um, and then and then people just genuinely being so hard on themselves, um, like lacking that self-compassion uh you know because i've been asked before like what would i change like uh, across the board if i could wave a magic wand or something whatever you comes in and it's like you know what 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 wave of the wand would i think would have a a, a large impact and i i answered that question before i was like i just wish people were, were weren't as hard as themselves weren't as hard on themselves and were a bit more self-compassionate 
Um, and then I suppose within that, there's the, the mindfulness component and you can tie that into mindful eating is that people are generally, how they eat their food is, is generally uh, not that helpful for what, what their goals might be. So they might eat too quickly um, and there may be mindless eating and you know that may you know, be conducive to more disordered eating behaviors and things like that. So uh, that, that is a lot of stuff I'm not trying to actually realize, um, but yeah, just kind of rattling them off. They're, they're definitely some of the main, I suppose, issues we see for people coming in the door. Yeah, that gives it a full sweep and perspective of like how much work you can do on your nutrition um, and how many different avenues you can go down. So I, I guess it would be easier if we had a client in front of us, but do you think uh, ways people can improve their nutrition, is it more knowledge or is it more like kind of, we'll say psychologically sort of, I don't know how you kind of describe that, maybe like the relationship with food or themselves. Is it like um, how they look at the food or just simply their knowledge or would it be typically a combination of both? Yeah, it's a good question. Like it, it's depending on the person, there's definitely elements of both. You know, I could, I could definitely argue from a knowledge perspective, you know, people potentially don't have the knowledge that they need to eat more protein. Um, but it's, it's often a knowledge of implementation. It's like helping people actually problem solve and troubleshoot these issues. So like I say to you, Ross, like, okay, and, you know, we need you to get, we need to get you eating more protein. Um, you know, I need to give you some sort of guidance on how you actually go about that. You know, so having the knowledge to eat more protein is, is not enough. You need to have the knowledge of how to do that. Um, because I think for a lot of people, you know, they'll like, you know, if you ask them what a healthy diet looks like, they'll probably be able to give you a good summary of, of what they're looking for. Like most people will probably say like, oh yeah, if, if I was to improve my diet, I'd probably want to eat more vegetables and more fruit and stuff. But then at the same time, you do see where people have been led astray by just misinformation in the fitness industry. So it's like, you know, I know I should eat more fruit and vegetables, but not too much fruit because of the, you know, the sugar in that, which is nonsense. Right. Um, so there, there's faults in knowledge, certainly in those kind of contexts. And um, that, that sugar one comes up a lot. Um, and I suppose, yeah, again, the, a lack of, of knowledge in the sense that knowing what principles they have to satisfy to get the, the results that they want. So like they probably don't have to just cut out like bread or entire food groups, like or carbohydrates, you know, to get the results that they want. And ha like thinking that that's the case shows a knowledge deficit, I suppose, of how the process actually works. And I often talk about this where like it's, it's methods and principles. So like going on a low carb diet, is a method to which you know satisfy the principle of a caloric deficit which is what's going to generate the fat loss right um but you don't have to do it that way and if people don't understand these principles then they end up in a situation where they think there's some magic to the low carb approach which is then obviously that's what the the people who are you know religiously attached to those certain diets will tell you that Yes, there is inherent magic to low-carb diets. And it's not just about the calories. When it is just about the calories, so um, it, it can be tough out there, like for people, if depending on where they're getting their information from. Um, and then, from a psychological standpoint, like that's certainly the case for a lot of those people with a poor relationship with food, and 
disordered eating. Um, that, like I said already, is, is food is often the solution in that situation rather than the problem. As it's often used, like say, a coping mechanism, or it, it serves some sort of purpose. Um, and you know, often that, as you said, can be related back to like relationships with themselves as well, and, and like not just the food. So that that side of things gets pretty complex, uh, as you can imagine, and there can be a lot to unpack. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of dialogue, really. It's a lot of back and forth and, and just having conversations about this stuff and helping people to challenge their, their thinking. You know, a lot of kind of cognitive therapy, almost uh, what it looks like, approaches to, to get people thinking differently about, about their food. And then you definitely have to implement some amount of knowledge there. So it's like, okay, maybe this, maybe I'm saying to you like, okay, I think you can actually eat chocolate and not have that be a problem for you uh, in terms of getting your results. But until that person goes and implements that and, and sees that for themselves, you know, it'll be hard for them to buy into. Um, but that would be like the knowledge provision there where it's like, okay, well, I'm telling you that, yeah, it's, it's not really about the chocolate. It's more like how much you have and your relationship to eating it in the first place, because, you know, if you feel terrible after you eat chocolate because you've broken some food rules that you've inherited or drawn up yourself, and then you feel shit about that. And then you use more chocolate to numb the feelings of feeling shit. And it becomes kind of a spiral then. So they're definitely, they're definitely the two of them are interlinked. Like you can't, you can't really separate them, but it, it varies from person to person. Like some person, some people will just, you know, they just need to understand that like, Hey, this is what, this is what the type, this is the eating pattern that is going to satisfy the requirements to achieve my goals looks this is what it looks like and once they have that knowledge it's fine um and then going into implement it um but then for other people it can be more on the on the psychological front yeah you can see how many different like mechanisms are at play with simply just having something like a brand chocolate <laughs> like it can be so complicated yeah um so why do you think that we'll call them like bad ideas why are they like so pervasive like why does the typical person seem to fall prey to so many bad ideas around nutrition and all the stuff you've just talked about, like, you know, the really solid fundamentals of proper nutrition. Why are they not like out there? Cause this is something I think about a lot. I'm like, you know, every second client or person I talk to, they have, they're possessed by some idea that just makes no sense when you think about it really, but they're so common. It's quite bizarre. Yeah. It's a very good question. And there's obviously, there's obviously many potential reasons for it. I think one of the reasons is like, you know, we're, we're, we're drawn to that shiny object syndrome and we, we like, well, I, I was going to say simple answers or simple solutions to our problems, but the reality is that it's often simple solutions that get ignored. And then, you know, you know, for example, somebody who's, who's a general activity, their niche is low, right? Let's, let's say that that's, the problem but for that person they could be they identify with having a broken metabolism and that's their issue so and that will be you know there is definitely information out there depending on where you look that people will say yes you have a broken metabolism and that's the cause of your you know your weight problems and things like that or whatever the case may be but it's the people who are saying like yes this is the answer you know it's it's this broken metabolism i can help you fix that you know when you sign up to my program or you buy my supplements or whatever the hell the person is selling um 
But I think a lot of people in this industry, especially in the in the training side of things, or maybe even maybe even like more specifically like rehab injury pain management, a lot of that is I think you probably agree like people create problems and then sell the people solutions to them. They have all the stuff about like posture and shit. That's um like that's not really my area of expertise, but like you know with like the Gary on the team and stuff, you know he's he's a, a genius when it comes to that sort of stuff and the movement of the physical side of things um so i think the people the people who have well yeah so there's a few things i'm trying to unpack here uh, in my head so the people who are going to promote all the nonsense stuff have very little qualms about promoting their nonsense stuff right because they are fully invested they're at the you know the far left side of that dunning kruger graph where they have a little bit of knowledge and they're convinced that that is all there is to know. Whereas people in my position in the nutrition field are, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly just saying like, possibly this and maybe that, and it could seem that X, Y, Z. There's very little things that we say conclusively. Um, and there's very few absolute statements that we make, right? Because we understand that there's so much nuance to this and, and that we understand how much, how little we actually know in the grand scheme of things. Um, so we're, a lot more conservative in, in terms of making bold statements. And if we're not making bold statements, then probably not garnering as much attention because, you know, if you, if, if someone goes on, like, you know, Dave Asprey goes out there uh, and says like, you know, putting this butter in your coffee is going to solve all your problems. Like that's, that's engaging and that's eye catching. People are like, Oh shit. Yeah. Butter. I thought that was bad for me. No, but I can put it in my coffee and, lose like 50 pounds or whatever and then feel fantastic and like you know win win silicon valley um you know because i'm so i'm gonna be so mentally supercharged like i can't go and say that ethically like any of that kind of shit but he can and he has no qualms about it so that's very very attractive and people like to buy into those those kinds of solutions to their problems you know the kind of magic pill stuff versus the kind of unsexy stuff that is there is at the root of it and that that people like myself have to uh kind of deal in you know like it would be easy to just start making wild claims and get a bigger following that way but it would it would be all lies um so i and and then so that that's i think that's a huge issue and then the fact that there's no filter and no kind of policing of what people can put out there Right, because you 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 go you go onto like the medical mediums page and you start giving him shit for, you know, talking about celery juice exorcisms or whatever the fuck he's talking about. You know, you just you just get blocked. Like there's no um, there's no engagement, there's no debate there. It's just you're blocked. You know, you're a hater, whatever, and and that's it. Um, so there's just and like so without any of the, the filtering and it doesn't accommodate any policing. Uh, you got people just out there able to garner large audiences. Um, you know, that's the stuff that's going to get picked up like in media in general, because again, it's more engaging uh, rather than, you know, man, 29 suggests eating vegetables is good. Like that's, you know, that's not, that's not as, uh, as engaging. So uh, those are some of the reasons I think, um, is there any major ones that you'd add or uh, you think, do you think along the same lines? I'm just thinking of like Tony Robbins. 
Tony Robbins comes to mind with all his stuff and how he's like so kind of eccentric and he makes you know crazy claims and I guess uh, we like novelty or we like you know things that appear sexy or uh, extreme. I guess that gets ex us excited and really it's kind of like if you require excitement to be consistent you're going to have a tough time being consistent because you know the stuff that works it will not excite you but it will work so i guess um not a whole that's just yeah what, what i can kind of add not not too specific but yeah novelty does have a big role in these things um yeah it makes me think i guess that people who are like sort of charlatans they they're definitely doing something right, whether it's ethical or not. That's a whole other question. But it's like, I think we could definitely learn something from them in the sense that uh, if we could, I don't know, kind of jazz up the work we do or maybe mm. be aware that the novel approach or the exciting approach, you know, can bring more people over to what we do, um, more evidence-based approach, you know, instead of just being the kind of the researcher academic in your ivory tower, totally out of touch with uh the lay people, you know, that'd be the worst situation to be in. Um, but yeah, just kind of going back then to like what you've done more recently, the, uh, the fat loss phase you had, you were getting coached by Patty of, of triage. Um, yeah. will you just tell us a little bit about that, how you, you know, had such a nice kind of result and, um, then, you know, what you're currently doing as well with your, uh, your post diet kind of nutrition as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I started, getting coaching from Patty um, as soon as the gyms reopened here, uh, which was in around, around June, start of June. Um, and I, you know, I, I for a long time, I hadn't had anyone take care of my programming for me. So I hadn't been training with as much intention, like I've been training consistently, but then especially throughout like lockdown and stuff was like, uh, I don't know how much training from home you might've had to do, but like it's, it's hard to bring the same fire to, you know, train in the same space where you're also sitting down watching TV, like in the evenings, you know, it's, it was hard to bring the intensity. So it was very much like of a maintenance kind of, you know, a training approach, you know, it's not, not aiming to get like very big or very strong from home, but at least maintaining muscle mass. And where I worked on some different like modalities, like, like power stuff and things and more cardio, but, it's kind of beside the point. Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted some sort of focus with my training. Um, so having a coach obviously to program for you based on the goals that you have. And then, you know, cause it's, it wasn't like, I got a nice result. I lost like 10 kilos or so. Um, which I should say was like where I am now is like my normal more than where I started. So that was some weight I had gained, um, throughout pandemic i suppose and it wasn't like wasn't one of these cases of like oh i just like let everything slide and, and gain weight over the pandemic i was very happy to see that go up um so i was kind of content with that um and i'd never been that heavy uh for any consistent period of time so i was like all right this is pretty cool like i'm not a kind of pb and sort of sort of body weight and stuff and like my body composition wasn't bad i was relatively happy with it um but clothes and things were starting to get certain clothes starting to get tight then we'll have to buy a whole new wardrobe uh i needed to lose weight for jiu-jitsu you know to get into competitive weight bracket again um and like i said this is like sort of where i've sat weight wise body comp wise for the last 10 years or so so um i'm back in my you know range so to speak 
Um, but we had a lot of things I, I wanted to work on. You know, I had, I had some uh, kind of ongoing knee issues that I had because I used to play a lot of basketball. And I wanted to go back to playing basketball, and um, which I have done. So uh, managing that knee pain, what was a big part of it that, that Paddy helped me with. Um, getting fitter, stronger um, for jiu-jitsu mostly. Um, and, you know, the, the cardiovascular fitness as well for basketball and get my resting heart rate down because it was a little high, like for somebody who considers themselves to be pretty fit and healthy, like it was a little bit high. So um, driving that down was good. Um, saw a big increase in my testosterone levels as well, which, uh, you know, not, not, not necessarily something we we're aiming for as such, but, you know, it's nice to see that, um, which is probably mostly driven by, you know, the big influx and in training intensity, uh, you know, it's really going after those sessions uh, and losing that body fat as well. That was like people keep, people keep asking me like, oh my God, how did you, how did you increase your T levels by so much? Because um, they went from like, like 19, 20 nanomoles per liter um, up to like 28 or 29 or something like that. And then 31 is like the high end of normal. So I'm right at the high end of normal now. So people obviously think that's cool. Like when you see such a big shift over the course of a few months. Um, that's what we did. Yeah, was, you know, the Paddy was taking care of all my programming. I was taking care of my nutrition, the accountability and having to fill in the check-ins like counts for a lot. Because I keep saying that even if Paddy was not going to give me any feedback throughout the whole process, just by me having to fill in the check-in and kind of objectively review the week each week was massively beneficial. Um, obviously having a training program to follow, having, I won't say certain numbers to hit because like we use a lot of auto, auto regulations like reps in reserve or rate of perceived exertion. Um, so having training intensities to hit, let's say, um, because the actual weights could fluctuate based on, you know, how well you slept, how far into the diet you were, et cetera. Um, so yeah, uh, that was, that was the crack. Like is mostly fat loss, get fitter, get stronger, kind of trying to do everything to be fair when, when you want to actually say it all out loud. Um, and then we wrapped it up when it was starting to get difficult in terms of how I was feeling. Yeah. I wasn't feeling too great towards the end. Um, adherence uh, as a result was starting to slip. Um, I, I could have lost like another kilo potentially, and that would have been brought us to like exactly where we wanted to be, but didn't really need to invest the more time and effort into doing that when I could just wrap it up uh, at that point. So um, now I'm like four or five weeks into a maintenance phase. Like, so since the fat loss phase, um, and the idea here is to, Obviously, it was a big injection of calories, you know, so uh, brought calories up by about 20% um, from where I finished uh, in the dieting phase. Uh, so, you know, that was a reasonably big jump. I have not seen any regression in body composition uh, as a result, which I think people will be, I think it's good, good for people to hear that because one of the problems I see with a lot of people is that like, they don't know what to do after a fat loss phase, like assuming they do a successful fat loss phase, which can be difficult in its own right. But once they like achieve the fat loss goals, they don't really know what to do next because they obviously don't want to regress. They don't want to just gain all the weight back that they lost. Um, so then they're not sure what to do. And then it can be kind of a, a tough 
proposition to, to say, okay, well, you need to start eating more, you know, start going back to maintenance calories rather than being in a deficit. Um, but it does work. So, you know, basically a good message from this is that the approach that got you to where you wanted to be is not necessarily what's going to have to keep you there. So it, it is pertinent to start eating more, um, start like, you know, just having more energy in the system again, you know, cause I'm like, cause a lot of that, a lot of that stuff was shot for me towards the end. Like energy levels weren't that good. Training intensity, like we did a thing with four months of a diet phase training intensity for the first three months was phenomenal. Like it was class. And the last month and it was, it was dog shit. Like it was, it was really, really, I was dragging myself through sessions. Um, so I, I was doing a lot of training. Um, and you know, I could see my steps declining, you know, not, um, intentionally but whereas previously i would happily go around go out for like 15 minutes and just shoot around the basketball was not doing that whatsoever uh towards the end so it was interesting for me to see that stuff kind of objectively like oh yeah i can see how i'm you know my knee is is declining here uh and i literally just don't feel like doing that versus where i would before you know libido wasn't wasn't great uh by the end either so you know that was all those reasons were like why it was time to wrap it up um, and now things are a lot better, you know, having spent a few weeks at maintenance and eating a lot more um, and trying to manage training fatigue. There's a lot of, I'm doing a lot of training, so uh, it's important to try and manage uh, yeah, essentially fatigue yeah, across the week, like to keep everything ticking along properly. So does that answer, is that answer your question? Anything else you want to know about that? Um, I think that's the gist. That's great. Yeah, that just shows you how much you can do with uh, good support and a good coach. Um, something I want to go back to is you said you gained weight, but you felt pretty happy about it. And I know that's a big fear for people. I'd even say myself, if I was to do a book, I would be like, or a masking phase, whatever you want to call it. I would be kind of apprehensive about the idea of like, oh, I lose my abs, I lose my definition or, you know, whatever. But it's like, I guess, did you do anything intentionally to make that easier for yourself? Um. I think, and you know, this, that's, that's something that a lot of people struggle with, uh, is that prospect of yeah, losing definition or seeing a deteriora deterioration in body composition. The way I would look at it and, and the way I encourage people to look at it is that, you know, what, what are you actually trading in for, let's, let's call it a, a deterioration body composition. What are you actually gaining from that though? So you're able to obviously eat more. Uh, and that's what you're doing so what does that yield that yields kind of more flexibility just in managing your nutrition overall it yields more flexibility in social situations um you know going out for meals with your partner or friends or family or whoever um a little bit less of a mental burden in terms of managing your nutrition right so there may be a, an added mental effect from trying to come to terms with the fact you're gaining weight but there's also a bit of a relief where you can afford to be a bit more relaxed with your nutrition um, uh, and your lifestyle and all the things that come with that, you know? So again, energy levels going to be pretty good. Um, you know, generally not feeling hungry. Uh, you know, your, your training performance should be pretty good. Now I will say that doing a gaining phase during a lockdown, not, not ideal. Like it's not the smartest thing to do because, you know, I, I would have probably got a lot more out of it being in a surplus when the gyms are, are open and is able to train as normal, right? I, did have a I had a decent uh, home training setup 
fair enough. Like I think upper body training was pretty solid. Lower body was a bit more difficult to, to manage, but um, yeah, basically looking at all the things that you gain besides the weight, right? That's basically what we're looking at besides the body fat. And then, you know, understanding where this fits in to, you know, the process that you're in or the path that you're on that like, you know, yes, maybe you'll, you'll gain some weight here, but you know, you can probably pull it off, you know, pretty, pretty easily, you know, can run a fat loss phase if you wanted to. Um, and and like, I'm going to say for me myself, but also this is something I try to preach to people is like, you know, how important is it to you, what you look like and why, you know, so we have a saying, you know, in triage that like your, your, what your body physically looks like should be one of the least interesting things about you as a person. So what else factors into your sense of self-esteem, I suppose, um, you know, what are the things that you value that you're taking care of in life that aren't just your physical appearance? Because if all you've got is your physical appearance, like that's not much really to go on as a, as a full-fledged human being. Um, and, you know, if you look at, if you look at people, you may have seen these kind of images before either from like Shannon, or if you look, ever look at a, Jake Leonard and stuff, you know, the, the break binge eating, you know, the, the pie chart of how someone's like the proportions of the things that people are doing in their life. So maybe like their career, um, you know, their, their exercise, their spirituality, their family, their friends, those relationships, um, and then their physical appearance, like what size of the pie does each of those things take up? Have you, have you seen this or uh you know what i'm talking about or no but it sounds kind of like a little bit intuitive i can imagine it yeah yeah sweet yeah good uh i think like, hopefully everyone else can imagine it then as well um so what you see is that for people who generally have disordered eating behaviors like that often stems from an overemphasis on how much of that pie is taken up by physical appearance so you know for me for example physical appearance i'll just say like 20% of the pie or something. But then for someone who has um, issues with themselves, essentially, and uh, disordered eating behaviors, uh, this is often driven by this overemphasis of overvaluation, is, sorry, is the better word for it, overvaluation of weight and physical appearance in that pie chart. So theirs could be like 40% or something of that pie chart. So that means that everything else that could potentially bring you kind of fulfillment in your life doesn't get as much attention and um, so trying to make it a bit more even is uh, is a great way to basically not have all your eggs in the what i look like basket in terms of you feeling good about yourself so my point from that is that trying to cultivate other things aside from what you look like that can be important to you so again relationships like my career is very important that takes up a big chunk of, of my pie and, you know, being a good coach. So, you know, I, <laughs> I said I could look like shit, um, but if I'm doing a pretty good job of that, I'm probably still going to be pretty content, you know? Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm still not going to be willing to let myself go. You know, it shouldn't be the case, I don't think, for myself because I enjoy doing all the things that will keep me, you know, physically healthy and fit or whatever. Um, one aspect of this that I should point out as well that made it easier is that my pattern of fat deposition is favorable for body composition. So I store 
a lot of fat in my glutes. So for some people, you know, the typical male fat deposition pattern is the around like spare tire midsection. Um, so for someone who doesn't have the same sort of pattern as I do, I have like that, like, you know, Instagram fit chick storing loads of fat in my glutes for the booty poses. Um, which is kind of fortunate because it means my, my midsection doesn't pack on a lot of fat. So visually, it could be a lot heavier, but you might not notice because a lot of it is in my glutes. So that's just a kind of, I won't say weird, but just a, 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 an aside that's worth mentioning because um, that definitely makes it easier, you know, because I'm not like getting a gut, so to speak, uh, at the same rate as someone else might if they didn't have that uh, pattern of fat deposition. You know what I mean? Um, so I think it's, I think it's, it would be remiss of me not to say that like that also helps because aesthetically maybe it's not the same detriment as for someone else. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. That really like gives a, a broad overview of how people should approach uh, a weight gain phase if they, if they so uh, wish to do so or if they're thinking about it. Um, to kind of pivot and go towards the end of your fat loss phase. So I think a lot of people, uh, they see, you know, men's fitness and, you know, Rob Riches or whoever, Steve Cook is like, you know, a 10 pack and like, oh, I'd love to have that. That'd be great. Like, you know, my life would be so much better. And then it's kind of like, you're talking about how difficult it was to reach your target. So will you just talk a little bit about like, let's say when training was going well, nutrition was going well, but like all the other facets of your life were going well. And then that last month, kind of compare and contrast a little bit, would you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll say as well that like, like I said, I am at a point where I'm, my body is pretty happy. This is where I'm normally at. So I'm normally in this, like, it's, it's getting a little bit heavier as years go on, hopefully because I'm building more muscle tissue, but, uh, between that, like 84, 88 kilo range is where I am historically. Um, and I started that diet phase, um, back in like, well, yeah, say June when I started working with Patty. um, at like 96 97 kilos right so it's like 10 kilos over kind of the high end of my normal um so i, I don't i don't think i'd have any problem going lower but it would have been very difficult because i've been as light as like say 80 80 82 kilos and um, you know when i actually started gaining all that weight i just finished up a month in bali back in the end of 2019 and i just lost weight there uh, i was struggling to eat no food uh, I got sick a couple of times, like, so, you know, a couple of days not eating then in that case. Um, so that was where the, you know, the weight gain started was, or was that my like lowest generally point, uh, in terms of body weight. And then over like the course of like 18 months or something, I, I gained the weight and then obviously pulled it off again, but it would have been very difficult for me to go from like 96 back down to like 80 versus going from 96 to, you know, 86 um now i'm gonna i'm gonna hang out here for a while uh keep pushing calories up a little bit keep enjoying training again uh, and trying to get stronger and having goals set in that context so i think that's another important part of managing a gaining phase like you should have goals and targets to work towards um and then that will go pretty well but to actually answer your question um yeah the difference was was uh motivation to train was a lot lower um I won't say, I wouldn't say I was like overly hungrier, but 
like sorry, I wouldn't say that the hunger was unmanageable, but the low energy was an issue for me. Um, especially when I'm trying to like, you know, work and stuff and, and do well at that. Um, so even from not a training point of view. Um, so that was a bit of a, you know, that would, that, I think that was encouraging me to eat more, you know, so I might not have been like necessarily very hungry, but I was eating more and therefore my adherence w- was slipping a little bit. Um, so I was eating like you know, a couple hundred calories more, maybe some weeks than I should have been. Um, which is a, a good sign of like, maybe went to call it quits. Cause it's like, well, you know, if your adherence is, is not good, you know, you, you have to, you have to tweak something. Um, and for, for me in that case, the tweak was just to finish up the diet phase. Um, but yeah, low energy, uh, you know, poor libido, um, low training drive. They, those were the main ones, like the main deficits, I would say, um, that, that I wanted to address, I suppose, because I was really enjoying training sessions, right? And then all of a sudden I wasn't. I was like having to drag myself to the gym to do those training sessions having to drag myself to jiu-jitsu to do those training sessions um you know i'm not that eager to do my cardio um yeah and then obviously no one enjoys low libido um like least of all my girlfriends so uh you know that was that was you know i i, I there was no reason for me to just stick it out you know i i like feeling good you know uh, for as much of the time as i can and there was no there was no necessity for me to just stay there for another few weeks to try and like, you know, take off another kilo. Cause like, what was that going to, what was that going to mean for me? Like nothing. It was going to bring me slightly closer uh, or in a slightly better position for competing in jujitsu. But then it actually turned out, I didn't mention this was occurred to me that, you know, I had intentions to compete, but then when I looked at the competition schedule, I saw, well, shit, I'm, I'm actually missing most of the competitions this year. Cause I'm going to be away. Uh, I'm going away on Saturday uh, and most of the comps are going to be, you know, this month and next month. So it was like, okay, well, that actually takes away another reason for me to actually need to finish this off and to like specifically be at that weight. Um, so yeah, th- those are the main contrasts, uh, you know, basically looking forward to training every week or every day, I should say, uh, versus not, and it being a bit of a slog. And like, you still can go and do it. You know, that's, that's, that's a good point. Like I wasn't, I wasn't missing sessions, but um, like, I don't think I missed a session in that, in the first three months at all, you know, which, which is pretty like, that's, we talk about consistency all the time. Like that's, that's legitimate consistency. Um, and then I did miss some in the last month, but not really just not cause I just wasn't going to them or anything, but just different things came up that hadn't come up before that got in the way or whatever um but yeah that's uh, they were the main differences i would say but those are huge as well because that's like your quality of life you know your libido your motivation to work out which is like you know if you're working a lot and you're building up your career working out is like you're kind of it's almost like your self-care and just something you do for enjoyment so it's one less thing you're going to enjoy um the food and energy as well like you can't really have the zest for life that you normally have so you know it might look great on the cover but like uh there's a lot going on, you know, behind the scenes that, you know, you could be missing out on. So important to consider that when you set out in the fat loss phase. Um, yeah. The cost, the cost of getting lean. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. It's a huge cost and like sustainability is kind of something you're touching on there. It's, it's pretty much not really sustainable to have, you know, uh, a lean physique year round and nor would you want to for all the reasons you've, you've alluded to. 
Um, so one of your posts you had was about self-compassion and you've, you have three part series on that. Will you touch on that and, you know, touch on why you did a series on it and, um, why it's important. Yeah. So I think I mentioned it earlier, um, how people are so hard on themselves. So self-compassion where you are not being really hard on yourself is there's three components, three main components to self-compassion. Um, hence whether there's it's a three-part series on it. So there is a, so it's a way of, you know, treating yourself essentially. So I think we can, we all can conceptualize what it means to be compassionate in general. And then it's just, you know, that we're, we're probably good at being compassionate with other people, but maybe less so with ourselves, um, which is a shame. So there's the first element of it is the common humanity piece, right? So, uh, you know, essentially, when, if you're ever struggling with something, this is where the self-talk can creep in and you can either tell yourself that like you're a terrible person because you're struggling with this and, you know, this idea, how can you not like just get this done or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so that's obviously the, the uncompassionate approach. Um, but then an element of the more compassionate approach is that you acknowledge that you are not the only one going through whatever this problem is. You're not the only one having this struggle, you know, essentially, someone somewhere is either going through it right now as well, same as you, or at least has done in, in, in the past and in, in history, right? Because, uh, you know, I, re I read a lot of like Stoic philosophy and stuff and, you know, some of that stuff is, uh, you know, over you know, like a couple thousand years old and it's the same, they're having the same problems that, that we are now, like obviously in a different kind of format and different environment, but same problems. So like, Human, human problems are uh, as old as we are, essentially. So someone somewhere is having those problems that you're having. Someone somewhere will have them in the future, right? So well, that, that's helpful for us to acknowledge that we're not alone and we're not like a freak or a weirdo or someone that's like isolated in this kind of suffering. That definitely helps people, you know, feel better about what they're going through and therefore be able to manage it better. Um, so that's what, that's one key component of self-compassion. Second one is the, the mindfulness and being able to be present with, with what's going on um, without judgment. So again, not like berating yourself for having the experience that you're having, just having the experience and, that, and that's it. Um, so that can kind of quieten you know, the, the, the mental chatter, um, which again, depending on how you talk to yourself can make things worse. And then third component of self-compassion is, um, self-kindness. So like literally just as it sounds, being nice to yourself, uh, a really good frame that I like to use for this is, um, you know, if you talk to yourself there, do you, do you talk, would you talk to your friends like you talk to yourself? And if so, would they be your friends for very long if you did, right? So that's a really good uh, kind of frame of reference. Like, would I actually speak to the people I care about like this? And if the answer is no, then you have to say, okay, well, there, there's a deficit there and there's a discrepancy there because I should be talking to myself like someone I care about. Uh, and that's like kind of an interesting concept in this whole sort of coaching process on the psychological side is that like, um if 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 people aren't as hard on themselves they're often worried that they won't 
bother with the things that they need to do and they'll just start they'll be, become lazy essentially um but the reality is that you will probably take care of the things that you care about and that you like so if you actually care for yourself you know by not berating yourself all the time and so on and so forth it's actually more likely that you'll engage in you know health promoting behaviors because you actually care about yourself now more does that make sense um so the, yeah that's a, that's an interesting aspect of it so yeah that self-kindness is important and you know it's not a like it's not a cop-out like people people hear it initially and they think oh yeah but then i'll just like get lazy and just you know eat ice cream all the time because oh i can just be compassionate and, and not like berate myself if i do that you know chastise myself if I, if I go amiss and it's like well it's again you wouldn't want that for someone that you care about uh you know you wouldn't set, tell your friend like oh yeah no don't worry about your you know fat loss goal just keep eating the ice cream like if you're a real friend you wouldn't do that so it, the same applies to yourself that if you're actually going to treat yourself properly like well you understand what your what your values are and what your goals are you're, you're going to do things in support of those that's not just going to be like you know you're going to take the piss um just because you're being a little bit nicer to yourself and then and then the research shows that you're more likely to actually have long-term success and achieve those goals when you approach them in this way so they're kind of yeah the self-flagellation and uh motivation through fear and things like that uh, doesn't doesn't work long term yeah which is very counter to what you hear in society or how people treat themselves um so i guess you hear the word self-compassion a lot more in recent times but it's hard to kind of like imagine what it looks like do you have any examples of maybe in your work with clients or in your own life where a client has learned to be more self-compassionate or you have yourself and it's like kind of, you know, change the course of how a situation was going. Um, and then could you just speak on maybe like, is there one of the most, is there one part of the three that's like maybe the most important or that people should, you know, uh, work on more than others? Yeah. Um, where I see this working a lot, is that when people are a little bit nicer to themselves as they're going through the process it actually helps them stick with it long enough so they can see the actual returns from the consistency because what i often see is that if people are well sorry this is not necessarily what i see but like this is what may have happened before if people are doing this stuff by themselves like what we often hear of from people when they start is that like you know i just I, I can't keep it going. Like I give up after, you know, whatever amount of time. Um, and one of the biggest reasons for that is that because they're so hard on themselves going through the process, they essentially don't want to experience that self-flagellation, you know, over and over and over again, because they're not meeting these uh, like expectations or targets that they've set for themselves, which are, like I said earlier, are often, completely out of whack anyway but what you see with the self-compassion stuff where people are a bit nicer to themselves that they can acknowledge basically when they have a week that's good enough to get them the results and keep them on the path that, that, that they need to be on even if it's not perfect it doesn't, doesn't matter if it's perfect or not um so it helps them to keep going and not throw in the towel where they might have numerous times in the past uh if that makes sense that's definitely one of the biggest ways that i see self-compassion working in practice that's like 
and this is why people always say it's like you know i i in the past i would have thrown in the towel by now um and it's often people who have very negative self-talk generally too so in terms of um yeah the most important or like yeah the most important of three um like mindfulness has so many implications uh, in the work that we do you know so i do a lot of mindful eating work with people um the people who have like disordered eating issues often often need to do some mindfulness um and work on being present rather than than trying to block out the present with food you know and using it as an as a numbing mechanism um you know, a meditation or mindfulness practice is often very good for a lot of reasons, you know, let's throw it under mental health, but like there's, there's physical health there as well. So like, I'd be tempted to say the mindfulness is because it's so broad and has so many uh, benefits to it, like all across the coaching experience. Um, but I also spend a lot of time talking to people about their self-talk as well. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, like, asking them to reevaluate it if it's not something that they would say to a friend of theirs or you know to say their best friend um can they rephrase how they're talking to themselves um and then you could say that like in order to be able to do that like you might have to keep like a thoughts diary or self-talk diary to notice how you speak to yourself and in order to be able to notice how you speak to yourself you're going to have to be more mindful and self-aware so maybe it does always just come back to mindfulness potentially um but yeah those are some of the ways that, that we see it go down uh, in the actual coaching yeah very interesting it makes me think of like the ten thousand hour rule and how you know it's just really kind of time on task that separates people who kind of maybe master a certain like goal or a certain career not really that they had any special ability starting out and like you know they were born with the genetics like lebron james or like i don't know henry Sheffin or something whatever you know it's like no they just I guess we're fortunate enough maybe to have the self-compassion to stay on task, like you said, um, which is like quite interesting to consider. Like, you know, everybody can uh, increase that self-compassion uh, if they become aware of it through the mindfulness. Um, so it's kind of like an empowering message, really. So um, then the next thing I wanted to touch on is uh, we're coming up to the holidays, Thanksgiving here in the US, uh, the Christmas period back in Ireland, back home. Um, any kind of, let's say, tips, strategies, anything you recommend to clients or you do yourself that help people to, I guess, I guess the number one thing really, forget like, you know, flourishing with your health, just not be stressed out over that time. I think it's pretty easy to get stressed out, especially when it comes to nutrition, you know, your, your area of expertise. So any kind of thoughts around that? Yeah. So people often feel, as you said, stressed out because uh, this perceived lo loss of control in relation to their food behaviors. Um, and there's a lot, there's potentially a lot going on. So maybe people have the potential to be eating and drinking more and then also maybe even exercising less than usual, right? So it's kind of a disruption to their, whatever their normal routine may be. But, um, you know, since I mentioned, mentioned mindfulness there a second ago, it makes me think of like mindful eating principles, right? Which is huge and extremely useful in these situations and in general, right? So like mindful eating is fantastic. Um, but in particular, when you've less control over maybe the food that's put in front of you, so maybe you're out at a restaurant um, or you're over in friend or family's house and they prepare the meal, you know, so or say a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, essentially if you're going somewhere for that, um, you know, you may not have full control over 
what food is presented to you or what food is put on your plate. But you do have control over how much you decide to eat and you can use sort of internal cues of say like fullness just to help you know when to stop in any of these eating situations. So you can apply this to any time you're eating, right? For any meal. Um, but I find it particularly useful in these sort of contexts. Um, so basically the idea would be that, you know, you sit down to the meal, you're going to eat it really slowly. Um, you're going to take at least 15 minutes to eat it, maybe longer. And while you're going through the eating, you're going to, like I said, take it nice and slow. So you take a mouthful of food, put your knife and fork down in between bites, chew it properly. That will help you slow down. Then, you know, just work your way through it. And like every so often say like, okay, on a scale of one to 10, 10 out of 10 being, you know, properly stuffed, uncomfortably full, you know, how full do I actually feel right now? Um, and if you have any sort of targets to like manage your body composition, manage weight, either fat loss, or maybe just preventing, you know, weight gain with maybe the excess calories that come with this period, um, stopping around seven out of 10, eight out of 10. So you're pretty content. You could eat more, you know, if you, if you had a mind to, um, but you're pretty content and that, that's a good place to leave it. And like, you can apply, what I like about it is you can apply that in any eating situation ever. All you have to do is, is have a little bit of self-awareness as you're going through the meal. And look, I will say like, if someone's never practiced this before, because most people eat really quick, like I said earlier, like they eat quickly and mindlessly um, without much consideration of how full they are. So if you're new to this, you're not going to be like really well attuned to what seven out of 10, eight out of 10 feels like at the first time you try it. Okay. So it's going to, it's a skill that takes a bit of practice, like everything else. Um, but going ahead with that and just letting that be some of the guiding principles at your meals, even if you're not thinking too much about what you're eating, which, which you absolutely can, like, you know, you can do all the usual stuff of, you know, prioritizing your protein sources and prioritizing your plant sources and then building your meals around that. But even if, you can't do that for whatever reason. Uh, you can still use these mindful eating principles. And um, it's, it's kind of hard to go wrong, you know, if you actually maintain some level of mindful eating self-awareness, because if you do, then you won't, you know, just sit on the sofa and with like a box of celebrations or something and just keep eating them. Because, you know, if, if you were to do that, it wouldn't be very mindful. Um, so like trying to control the, the food environment in that sense is smart as well. So like, you know, don't sit on the couch with the tub of celebration on your lap. Instead, put a few out into a bowl or something and have that. And then, you know, put the rest away where you can't see them. You know, don't make it harder for yourself by massively increasing the levels of temptation because it's way easier to just keep eating them in that context than it is to stop. Whereas if they're back out in the press and you have to go up and get them, that's a little bit harder to do than if they're just on your lap all the time. So um besides the like very typical stuff like that would be some of some of the suggestions i have and, and there's other things you could look at there you could look at like uh utilizing some intermittent fasting you know so if, if you have to account for a lot of higher calorie meals you know dinners potentially then you know maybe you skip breakfast and have a normal lunch and then have a normal afternoon snack and then have your dinner or whatever it is so can be one way to manage uh you know calorie intake across the day or across the week um but i think the mindful eating 
piece is going to be really helpful, uh, like on a broader scale for people. That's great. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that people, they kind of like would eat maybe past the point of fullness and wouldn't apply these tools you're talking about, like, you know, as in, and, and what are the kind of the side effects to that? Like, let's say someone is, is, is like, you know, oh, you know, Brian, this sounds great, but like, you know, I really enjoy my food and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sit with the, the, the top of celebrations on my lap. I guess, what are some of like the things you would caution people around um, if there are any or well, yeah, what are your thoughts around that? If they didn't apply these tools and they were like, I don't need any plan, I'm going to fly with a seat in my pants and, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens. There's a, there's a huge irony to this because if you actually eat your food mindfully, you'll enjoy it more because you're actually experiencing it more. So I utilize some um, kind of intensive mindful eating exercises with people quite a lot for their so-called problem foods, which are the ones they feel like they don't have good control over. So it's like, it's the typical situation. It's like where, you know, oh, I can't just have one biscuit because then I end up having six or the whole pack. You know, it's, it's these kind of scenarios. Um, but when I get them to do this mindful eating exercise, one of two things happen, right? Either they enjoy the food a lot more, but eat a lot less usually to get the same level of satisfaction. Because, you know, one way I often analogize this is if, if you're sitting on the couch with the Toba celebrations and you're watching TV while you're eating them, because you're probably not sitting on the couch just eating them, right? <laughs> who's, who's doing that? Uh, you know, if, you're, if your mind is 50% on the food and 50% on the TV, do you have to eat twice as much to get the same level of satisfaction, right? Because your attention is divided. Whereas if your attention is not divided and you're actually paying attention to the, the eating experience and being mindful with it, like I said, what you often see is people derive a lot more satisfaction from it and end up eating a lot less. And that's, that's the report I nearly always get from people in this situation is that wow, I really enjoyed eating that. And I was super satisfied after, you know, whatever it is, half, of, half their usual portion, a third of their usual portion. Um, so often that's what happens. Or the other thing that often happens, um, which people kind of give out to me about when it happens, is that uh, they realize the food they're eating, they actually don't enjoy it. And they're like, you know, the actual eating experience of that was not that nice. Um, so I've had all sorts of report, great reports and, and feedback from people um, you know, being really good with the descriptive nature of these eating experiences. So I've had girl, I like a girl, I can just think of some examples off the top of my head with a girl saying to me that like eating these like chocolate covered biscuits and when doing it mindfully, she realized that she liked the chocolate part, not so much the biscuit part. So it's really just eating them for like the, you know, 15% of them, which was the kind of chocolate coating. And then the rest was kind of surplus to her enjoyment. Um, I've had a guy talk about eating crisps in this fashion and how he realized that he'd eaten them really quickly to try and maintain the actual flavor of the crisps because if he actually took his time with it, it just become like a flavorless potato mush in his mouth. That wasn't actually that pleasant. Um, so I've had, I've had quite a few people ruin foods on themselves where they realize this actually wasn't that enjoyable. Why the hell have I been getting so worked up about like being able to control myself when eating this, but also like just wasting time and, and calories and, and shit, eating this food in the past. And it's like, you know, if, if you're saying to me, Oh, I love my food and I just want to like fly by the seat of my pants. Like you're not doing it. You're not, you're not really loving your food because you're not paying attention to it. And if you do pay attention to it, you, be, you might be surprised 
as to what you experience. Like I said, it's, it's usually either God, why was I eating that? Like my whole life. Uh, or yeah, that's class. And yeah, wow. That half a bar of chocolate was super enjoyable. Um, and I don't actually have to eat, you know, uh, you know, three bars or whatever to get the same level of satisfaction. So uh, it's to add some more to that. Sorry. Cause you, you asked like, you know, what are the downsides to not eating mindfully? But so I've hopefully alluded to there, like overconsumption is usually the main downside because if you eat really quickly, you don't have time to register your level of fullness. So if you come home and you're quite hungry and you wolf down your, your dinner, uh, in like, you know, five minutes or whatever, which is not uncommon. Um, you won't be satisfied at that point because you haven't given enough time for that to happen. So then you'll probably eat something else because you're like, oh, I'm still hungry here. Or now I have a sweet craving um, because my body hasn't registered that we're actually at, we're after eating a meal. Uh, so now I'm going to eat more. And then when you actually get around to that 15, 20 minute mark, you start to realize, oh, I'm actually very full now um, because now it's actually starting to catch up with you and all the extra that you ate try and fill the gap just because you didn't give it enough time um so yeah those, those are the main reasons like it's it usually leads to overconsumption and less enjoyment of food because you're not actually paying attention to it if you if you eat too quickly and, and mindlessly yeah and then i can imagine as well it could be like bloating or just discomfort if you're eating too much which is typically what happens so really yeah. it kind of you can have like a nice meal, especially Christmas, you know, what could be a nice meal on the surface, you could end up spoiling it or having a nice moment with your significant other or friend or whoever. And if you, if you're not mindful, then you, you kind of ruin, you know, the opportunities there. Um, so just something then that I notice you do is the uh, jujitsu. So I see it's like getting very popular. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, why is there a trend among like the fitness industry to pick up jujitsu or is it like a kind of, a general thing it's not just fitness uh industry folk we'll call them and uh what are then some of the like you know the benefits or some of the lessons you've you've picked up since you've started jiu-jitsu yeah i like that question um in terms of its rise in popularity i have to imagine some of that is down to the rise in popularity of like mma and ufc and maybe we have you know conor mcgregor thank for that to some extent uh his you know, character, um, you know, he did put it in the spotlight, no doubt about that. And he's doing a lot for the sport. So, you know, obviously if, if you're into MMA or you're more aware of MMA, then naturally thinking about, okay, well, jujitsu is like half of that game. So, or not jujitsu, but say grappling is half of that. Um, you know, if you're not standing and, and exchanging strikes, then you're probably grappling to some extent. Um, so I think that definitely has a, a big role to play. Um, then in terms of people, I don't know if it's just people in the fitness industry, but I would imagine that people are into training, physical activity, you know, are, are going to be more inclined to say, oh, yeah, maybe I'd like to try that out. Um, I, think it, I think it may happen as well where, you know, people may have played sports, like, you know, early on in life. and then maybe got into the gym and then maybe it was only the gym that they were doing and maybe they miss the extra bits that come with it. So maybe like the competition or sometimes just more fun to have something that's like, you know, more skills-based uh, and there's a little bit more to it for lack of a better phrase. 
than just lifting weights up and down because you know i still i still love lifting weights like i'm not gonna lie i'm lifting weights like uh you know 14 15 years whatever 14 years 13 years something like that over a decade anyway um and i still really enjoy it but i know some people get kind of sick of it and uh kind of fall out of love with it and then they're looking for something to replace that so okay something like jiu-jitsu maybe it's a bit more challenging you know it's it's not as straightforward as just lifting weights up and down and there's a lot more to it a lot more to it cognitively uh you know because you're kind of having a chess match as well um at the same time so um they're probably some of the reasons i think that it's it's grown in, in popularity and then you know, obviously, as soon as a few people start doing it, then other people see, oh, hey, I might give that a shot, um, which is nice. Like, it's, it's nice to see it getting so popular. Uh, I've been doing it since 2019, start of 2019. So, like, obviously lost a lot of quality training time during the pandemic when, when the gyms were closed. Um, so, you know, while it has been a couple of years, like, it hasn't been a couple of years of quality training, really. Um, it's getting there, I suppose. It's it's nearly back up to that at this stage. But a lot of the reasons, like I love it, and I saw some of the the lessons you can probably take from it and bring them into your life is that, uh, you know, it's you have to put in a lot to get a little out of it. Um, so if you're somebody who, you know, uh, like if you, if your ego requires that you go in and progress at something really fast like you're probably gonna have a tough time doing jiu-jitsu because uh, as someone said as a friend of mine said to me like when i was early days doing it it's like for for a long time uh you're gonna be a nail and everyone else is a hammer right so it built like it, it cultivates a lot of resilience um because well you, you literally have to be in very uncomfortable positions um in jiu-jitsu right like you're getting suffocated and people are trying to choke you out uh you know you're struggling to breathe you can get kind of claustrophobic um so you know if, if you're undergoing that kind of thing on a regular basis like how much more resilient are you going to be to minor stuff in your just day-to-day -day life uh, i think you're going to be a lot more resilient to it and um, you kind of learn the value of hard work um and just like sticking to the path uh, because like I said, you have to put in a lot to get a little out of it. And I love that aspect of it. You know, I love the fact that, okay, if I want to get a black belt, I'm going to have to invest like 10 years here. And, you know, it's, it's only from grafting that I'm going to get that. Like I can't, you know, buy my way to a black belt or something. Now that's debatable. Some, like, there are some online programs that are somewhat questionable in the jiu-jitsu community because, you can get like graded up and stuff without actually ever having to spar with anybody. Like you can just do it all online, which is a bit weird. I don't know uh, much about it, but I, I've heard that talked about um, in the, in the club before. So, uh, you know, the fact that like you want to get a black belt, it's like, okay, you're going to have to put like 10 good years in. Um, I kind of relish that as a, as an opportunity. Whereas some people will say like, you know, fuck it, like the hell with this, you know, I'm not progressing fast enough um a lot of people disappear once they get their blue belt um for some reason because i think blue is the, is the one that people usually are at the longest before getting ranked up again um 
and you know a lot of this can be down to like life circumstances and stuff uh but i think like for a lot of white belts like you know if you make it past the first few months and stick with it then you're like okay kind of gunning for a blue belt and then maybe once you get that it's you kind of rest on your laurels a little bit or the idea of having to be bottom of the food chain again now and, and like only in competition settings like but like in the club you're just going to be wherever you're at you know you're going to be a little bit higher but there's still going to be a lot of people in there that are going to smash you um so yeah i just i just enjoy that the fact that it's hard work <laughs> to be honest um and obviously i like i like the kind of cognitive the aspect of it um you know trying to outthink your opponent um obviously the, the physical aspect of it, i like the self-defense capacity that it, that it provides you you know to be able to handle yourself um and to some to some extent you know um you know it's good to have some sort of training in, in martial arts i think so yeah there there are a lot of things that, that i like about it um you know i don't really use it as like physical fitness thing or physical development it's more like gaining the skills gaining the knowledge getting this the progression of it um that i think is part of the enjoyment of it um and you only and like assuming your your club is of a good standard like you only get what you earn so it's like there, there's no kind of hiding from it it's like you're either you're either good enough to get you know ranked up or whatever it is um or you're not there's no like kind of there's no debate yeah it's an objective uh result for the worker putting in sounds sounds like very uh useful as a life skill you know the resiliency and um the kind of the discipline i'd imagine you'd learn from it um so that's great i'm kind of intrigued by like the community aspect of it as well um and just learning self-defense for myself so maybe uh in time i'll get around to to actually instead of talking about it inquiring about it i'll get get to it um but yeah brian this has been brilliant uh thanks very much for your time um is there anything you want to mention anything we didn't go over um anything you want to discuss um no i think uh, i suppose just remind people if they where where they can find out more about me and and triage and stuff uh, if they've liked the sound of any of this conversation so uh you know you can find me on instagram at brian ohangasa um you know the triage method instagram um all the coaches have their own page too so you can find that through the triage page because uh, we're the only people that the triage page is following um so it's just the six of us there and you go to triagemethod.com um, if you're interested in any of those online coaching nutrition coaching personal training services or any of the the educational services um that that we provide because they're all they're all top class like so uh, i think that's all all i want to say thank you for having me on ross it was a, a nice chat i enjoyed it so hopefully the listeners will enjoy it as well yeah it's been brilliant and uh i can attest to the quality of the content triage has it's great and a great resource for anyone looking to learn more um or just uh, trying to educate themselves as well. So this has been great, Brian. Thanks very much.